1914, at the start of World War I, the land that is today Iraq was in the Ottoman Empire. The empire was already at that point considered the sick man of Europe. And you can go back to episode 65, where I discussed the decline and fall of the Ottoman Empire for more info. Anyhow, in 1916, in the middle of World War I, the British and French made a plan for the post-war division of Western Asia under what was called the Sykes-Picot Agreement. British forces captured Baghdad in 1917 and then defeated the Ottomans. An armistice was signed in 1918. The British lost 92,000 soldiers in the Mesopotamian campaign. Ottoman losses are unknown, but the British captured about 50,000 prisoners of war. By the end of 1918, the British had deployed about 400,000 men in the area. By the way, Western Asia, if you're wondering, is what we call sometimes the Middle East. This Sykes-Picot Agreement was a top-secret treaty between the United Kingdom and France with blessings from the Russian Empire and the Kingdom of Italy. And it was to define their mutually agreed spheres of influence and to control in an eventual partition of the Ottoman Empire, if and when that empire might fall apart at the end of potentially, they're hoping, their victory in World War I. The primary negotiations leading to the agreement that ultimately occurred between November and January, so that's November 1915 and January 1916. By the way, on that date, the British and French diplomats Marc Sykes and Francois George Picot initialed an agreed memorandum. That was on the 3rd of Jan. 1916. The agreement effectively divided the Ottoman provinces outside the Arabian Peninsula into areas of British and French control. The British and French controlled countries were divided by this Sykes-Picot line. The agreement allocated to the UK control of what is today southern Israel and Palestine, Jordan and southern Iraq, and an additional small area that included the ports of Haifa and Acre to allow access to the Mediterranean. The French were to control southeastern Turkey, Kurdistan, Syria, and Lebanon. Even within this agreement, there was an, another agreement between the French and the Russians where Western Armenia and Constantinople would ultimately go to Russia. It was called the 1915 Constantinople Agreement. In short, this agreement was initially used directly as the basis for the 1918 Anglo-French modus vivendi, which provided a framework for the occupied enemy territory administration in the Levant. Iraq was made up of three provinces at the time, Mosul, Baghdad, and Basra. These three provinces were joined into one kingdom by the British after the region became a League of Nations mandate administered under British control with the name State of Iraq. A fourth province, which Iraqi nationalists considered part of Upper Mesopotamia, ultimately got added to Syria, not Iraq. Then there was Colonel Thomas Edward Lawrence. No, that is, he was a British archaeologist, also an army officer, a diplomat and a writer who became renowned for his role in the Arab Revolt of 1916 to 1918 and in the Sinai 
and of course the Palestinian campaign of 1915 and 1918 against the Ottomans. He's more famously known as Lawrence of Arabia. The Sharifian solution put forward by Lawrence in 1918 was a plan to install three of Sharif Hussein's sons as heads of state in this newly created country or countries across the Middle East at the time. So who was Hussein? Well, he was an Arab leader from the Banu Hashim clan, who was the Sharif and Emir of Mecca from about 1908. And after proclaiming the great Arab revolt against the Ottomans, the king of Hejaz from 1916 to 1924. At the end of his reign, he also briefly laid claim to the office of the Shafarian Caliph. He was a 37th generation direct descendant of Muhammad, the prophet of Islam, and he claimed that he was also belonging to the Hashemite family. So it's not like Hussein was just plucked out of nowhere. He had a following and he had some integrity. Under this Shafarian solution, his uh, second son, Abdullah, would be ruling Baghdad and Lower Mesopotamia. His third son, Faisal, would be in Syria. And his fourth son, Zaid, in Upper Mesopotamia. Sharif himself would not wield any power in these places. And his first son, Ali, would be his successor in Hejaz. During all this time, the French were also doing their own thing, including the Franco-Syrian War that took place during 1920 between the Hashemite rulers of this newly established Arab Kingdom of Syria and the French. French forces defeated the forces of the Hashemite monarch King Faisal and his supporters entering Damascus on the 24th of July 1920. A new Pro-French government was declared in Syria on the 25th of July, headed by Allah of Adin, and the region of Syria was eventually divided into several client states under the mandate for Syria and the Lebanon. The British government, concerned for their own position in the new mandate in Iraq, agreed to declare the fugitive by this point, Faisal, as the new king of Iraq. With spiraling costs and influenced by public arguments from Lawrence in the Times newspaper back in Britain, the UK replaced Arnold Wilson in October 1920 with a new civil commissioner, Sir Percy Cox. Cox managed to quell a rebellion, yet was also responsible for implementing the fateful policy of close cooperation with Iraq's Sunni minority. So who again? are making these decisions. The British, of course, not Faisal. On a brighter note, slavery was finally abolished in the region in the 1920s. Britain granted independence to the Kingdom of Iraq in 1932 at the urging of King Faisal, though the British still retained their military bases, local militias in the form of Assyrian levies as well, and transit rights for their forces to and fro out of that land. King Ghazi ruled as a figurehead after King Faisal's death in 1933, while undermined by attempted military coups until his death in 1939. Ghazi was followed by his underage son, Faisal II. Abdullah served as regent during Faisal's minority. On the 1st of April, 1941, Rashid Ali al-Gayani and members of the Golden Square 
staged a coup d'etat and overthrew the government of Abdullah with backing from the Axis powers, notably Italy and Germany. This led to the Anglo-Iraqi war that became another theater of World War II. But why were the Axis involved at all? The United Kingdom, who still maintained air bases in Iraq, ultimately invaded Iraq for fear that the Rashid Ali government might cut oil supplies to Western nations because of his links to the Axis powers. What did I say? Black gold. Yes, oil. This war started on the 2nd of May, and the British, together with loyal Assyrian levies, defeated the forces of Al-Ghani, forcing an armistice on the 31st of May. Nuri Said was an interesting historical character. He served as the Prime Minister during the Kingdom of Iraq and was a major political figure in Iraq under the monarchy. From his first appointment as Prime Minister and under the British Mandate in 1930, Nuri was a major figure. And during many terms in office, actually 14 terms in office, he was involved in some of the key political decisions that shaped the modern Iraqi state. He signed, for example, the Anglo-Iraqi Treaty in 1930. The treaty was between the governments of George V of the UK and Faisal I of Iraq. High Commissioner Francis Humphreys signed for the UK and Prime Minister Nouri for Iraq. The 1930 treaty was based upon an earlier Anglo-Iraqi Treaty of 1922, but took into account Iraq's increased importance to British interests, given new oil found in 1927. This treaty nominally reduced British involvement in Iraq's internal affairs, but only to the extent that Iraq did not conflict with British economic or military interests. The agreement led the way to what I would class as a nominal independence as the mandate ended in 1932. Throughout most of his career, Nuri was a supporter of a continued and extensive British role within Iraq, which was against the popular mood. He had many enemies and had to flee Iraq twice after coups. As the overthrow of the monarchy in 1958, he was very unpopular. His policies regarded as pro-British were believed to have failed in adapting to the country's changed social circumstances. Poverty and social injustice were widespread, and Nuri had become a symbol of a regime that failed to address the issues of society and ultimately was considered somebody who was supporting only the well-off. On the 15th of July, 1958, the day after the revolution, he attempted to flee the country but was captured and killed. So what is this revolution that happened in 1958? Well, the July 14th revolution, also known as the 1958 coup d'etat, this resulted in the overthrow of the Hashemite monarchy of Iraq that had been established by King Faisal I in 1921. So it's not that old under the auspices of the British, of course. Faisal II, Prince Abdullah, and Prime Minister Nouri were executed by the military. As a result of the overthrow of the Iraqi Hashemite dynasty, the coup d'etat established the Iraqi Republic. The coup ended the Hashemite Arab Federation that had existed between Iraq and Jordan and that had been established just six months earlier. Abdel Karim Qasim seized power as Prime Minister until 1963. He was a nationalist and a brigadier of the Iraqi army. Yep, you could call it a military takeover, but he would argue that he was elected. 
This new government descended into autocracy very quickly, leading to his own overthrow in 1963, so he had been in power just five years. Despite one of the major goals of the revolution was to become more pan-Arabist and practice Arab nationalism, Kasim soon modified his views once in power. Kasim, reluctant to tie himself too closely to Nassar's Egypt, sided ultimately with various groups within Iraq, notably the Social Democrats, that told him such an action would be dangerous. Instead, he found himself echoing the views of his predecessor, Said, by adopting a sort of Iraq-first policy. This caused a divide in the Iraqi government between the Iraqi nationalist Qasim, who wanted Iraq's identity to be secular and civic nationalist, revolving around a Mesopotamian identity, and the Arab nationalists who sought an Arab identity for Iraq and closer ties to the rest of the Arab world. He also lifted a ban on the Iraqi Communist Party and demanded the annexation of Kuwait. Kasim is said by his admirers to have worked to improve the position of ordinary people in Iraq. After the long period of self-interested rule by a small elite under the monarchy, which had resulted in widespread social unrest. Interestingly, Kasim passed law number 80, which seized 99% of Iraqi land from the British-owned Iraq Petroleum Company. And then he also redistributed lands to more people in his own country, his own citizens. This had a massive benefit. It increased the size of the middle class inside Iraq in almost an instant. Qasim also oversaw the building of 35,000 residential units to house the poor and lower middle classes. The most notable example of this was the new suburb of Baghdad named Midat al-Tawara, also known as Revolution City, but renamed Saddam City and now is called Sadar City. Kasim rewrote the constitution to encourage women's participation in society. Kasim tried to maintain the political balance by using the traditional opponents of pan-Arabs, the right wing, and nationalists. Up until the war with the Kurdish factions in the north, he was able to maintain the loyalty of the army. He appointed as a minister Nazia al-Durmani, who became the first woman minister in the history of Iraq and indeed the Arab world. She also participated in the drafting of the 1959 Civil Affairs Law, which was far ahead of its time in liberalizing marriage and inheritance laws for the benefit of Iraqi women. Yet, the Ramadan Revolution, or more simply the February 1963 coup d'etat, was a military coup by the Ba'ath Party. And the Ba'ath Party were Iraqi right-wingers who overthrew Qasim in 1963. Unfortunately for Qasim, he was brutally murdered. Qasim's former deputy, Abdul Salam Arif, who was actually not a Ba'athist, was given the largely ceremonial title of president, while prominent Ba'athist general Ahmad Hassan al-Bakar was named prime minister. The most powerful leader of the new government was the secretary general of the Iraqi Ba'athist party, Ali Silah who controlled the National Guard militia and organized a massacre of hundreds, if not thousands, of suspected communists and other dissidents allowing the coup. The government lasted approximately nine months until Arif disarmed the National Guard in the November 1963 Iraqi coup, which was followed by a purge of Ba'ath Party members. After the latter's death in 1966, he was succeeded by his brother Abdul Rahman Arif, who was overthrown by the Ba'ath Party in 1968. 
Ahmed Hassan al-Bakar became the first Ba'ath president of Iraq. He was also the fourth president of Iraq from 1968 to 1979. He was a leading member of the revolutionary Arab Socialist Ba'ath Party and later the Baghdad-based Ba'ath Party and its regional organization, the Ba'ath Party of Iraq, which was this group that espoused a concept called Ba'athism, a mix of Arab nationalism and Arab socialism. Under al-Bakar's rule, Iraq grew economically due to high international oil prices, which strengthened his position in the Arab world and increased Iraqi's living standards. Land reforms were introduced and wealth was distributed more equally. A sort of socialist economy was established in the late 1970s. Al-Bakar gradually lost power to Saddam Hussein in the 1970s, as the latter strengthened his own position within the party and the state through the security services. In 1979, al-Bakar resigned from all public offices for health reasons. He died in 1982 of unreported causes. Saddam Hussein was the fifth president of Iraq from July 1979 until April 2003. Ba'athism, or Ba'athist, for the more curious amongst you, is an Arab nationalist ideology which promotes the creation and development of a united Arab state through the leadership of a vanguard party over a progressive revolutionary government. The main focal points are pan-Arabism and Arab socialism and include social progress as a part of their ideology. But just remember that the main pillar is this idea of Arab identity, pan-Arabism, and a strong socialist component. In fact, a Ba'athist state supports socialist economics to various degrees and also supports public ownership of the economy. But it opposes confiscating policies with regards to private property, so they do believe in private property. Ba'athist ideologies does mean socialism, but it does not mean economic equality. It has a strong current of modernization with it. So it's not strictly communism. It's not socialism. And it is about independent free Arab societies. Okay, so where was I? Oh, yes, Saddam Hussein. He was the fifth president of Iraq from the 16th of July, 1979, until the 9th of April, 2003. President Hussein, or Saddam, as he was more lovingly known, formally took power in 1979, although he had already been a de facto head of government for a number of years by then. It is widely believed that Saddam ran an authoritarian and a totalitarian style of government, not unlike previous rulers. So it was all, you know, you need that kind of authoritarianism and totalitarianism to keep the various factions that constructed Iraq in line and to hold and to secure his power base. Think about it. Brand new country, artificially constructed, Sunni Arab making up a minority, Shia majority, Kurds in the north, and him being a socialist Sunni Arab. Mm, so, you know, that's where the problems arise. He was actually someone who suppressed several groups. He, in his mind, probably had to, particularly Shias and the Kurdish movement which sought to overthrow the government or to gain independence. 
after the Iranian revolution of 1979, by the way, shameless plug, check out my episode number 39 on Iran. Anyhow, after the revolution, there were multiple cross-border raids between the two countries, both provoking one another, leading to the September 1980 Iraqi declaration of war on Iran. Armed conflict began on the 22nd of September 1980, with a full-scale invasion of Iran by Iraq ultimately thereafter. The war lasted for almost eight years and ended in, would you believe it, a stalemate on the 20th of August 1988, when Iran accepted Resolution Number 598 of the United Nations Security Council. The UN resolution requested the General Secretary dispatch a team of observers to monitor the ceasefire, while a permanent settlement was reached to end this conflict. It became effective actually on the 8th of August 1988, fundamentally ending all combat operations between the two countries, and the Iran-Iraq war was finally over. Ayatollah Khomeini, for his part, had been quoted about his opinion on the ceasefire, where he stated, and this is a great quote, so I'm going to mention it, and I'm air-quoting here. He said, Happy are those who have departed through martyrdom. Unhappy am I that I still survive. Taking this decision is more deadly than drinking from a poisoned chalice. I submit myself to Allah's will and took this drink for his satisfaction. End air quote. Iraq's primary rationale for the invasion was to cripple Iran and to prevent Khomeini from exporting the 1979 Iranian Revolution movement to Shia-majority Iraq, and internally thus exploiting religious tensions that would threaten this Sunni-dominated Ba'athist leadership. This war was a brutal and bloody affair. Iraq also hoped to replace Iran as the dominant state in the Persian Gulf, which prior to the Iranian Revolution was not seen as an achievable objective by the Iraqi leadership due to pre-revolutionary Iran's colossal economic and military power, as well as its close ties with the US, a superpower, and Israel, a major player in the Middle East. The Iraqi leadership had hoped to take advantage of Iran's post-revolutionary chaos and expected a decisive victory in the face of severely weakened Iran. The Iraqi military only made progress for three months, and by December 1980, the Iraqi invasion of Iran had ultimately stalled. To give you some idea of what was going on, fierce fighting had broken out between the two sides. The Iranian military began to gain momentum against the Iraqis and regained virtually all of its lost territory by June 1982, which is just a couple of years later. After pushing Iraqi forces back to the pre-war borderlines, Iran then invaded Iraq and went on the offensive for the next five years until the Iraqis then took back the initiative in mid-1988 and launched a series of major counter-offensives that ultimately led to the conclusion of the war in a stalemate. The US, the UK, the USSR, France, and many Arab countries provided an abundance of financial, political, and logistical support for Iraq. While some would say that Iran was reasonably isolated to a large degree, it did receive various forms of support, with its most notable sources coming from Syria, Libya, and China. 
ultimately, though, ultimately, eight long and painful years of war exhaustion, economic devastation, decreased morale, military stalemate, inaction by foreign powers towards the use of weapons of mass destruction by Iraqi forces on Iranian civilians, as well as increasing U.S.-Iran military tensions, all resulted in Iran's acceptance, Iran's acceptance of a ceasefire brokered by the United Nations. To give you an idea, this war included large-scale trench combat with barbed wires stretched across fortified defensive lines, manned machine gun posts, bayonet charges, Iranian human wave attacks, extensive use of chemical weapons by the Iraqis, and deliberate attacks on civilian targets. A notable feature of the war was the state-sanctioned glorification of what became known as martyrdom to Iranian children, which had been developed in the years just prior to the revolution. In total, in total, around 500,000 people were killed during the war, with Iran bearing the biggest share of the casualties. And that excludes the tens of thousands of civilians killed in the current Anifal campaign that was targeting the Kurds in Iraq. This end of the war resulted in neither reparations nor border changes. The combined financial cost to both combatants is believed to have exceeded U.S. dollars $1 trillion in the 1980s. This war ultimately resulted in a stalemate. No border changes, but it did keep Iran and Iraq busy among each other, while others, you know, could sell weapons, take oil, and keep these two off the world stage. Due to Iraq's inability to pay off Kuwait more than the 14 billion US dollars that it had borrowed to finance the Iran-Iraq war, and Kuwait's surge in petroleum production levels that kept revenues down, Iraq intercepted that as an act of war or an act of aggression against it. You see, throughout much of the 1980s, Kuwait's oil production was above its mandatory OPEC quota, which artificially kept the oil prices down. This was a unilateral decision that Kuwait had made. Saddam ultimately had enough of this nonsense and in August 1990 invaded and annexed Kuwait. This was a quick, and as far as wars go, smooth invasion that led to the occupation of Kuwait for about some nine months. The invasion and Iraq's subsequent refusal to withdraw from Kuwait by a deadline mandated by the UN led to direct military intervention by a UN-authorized coalition of forces that was led by the United States. These events came to be known as the Gulf War, or later as the first of two Gulf Wars, that in this case, the first one eventually resulting in a forced expulsion of Iraqi troops from Kuwait, and the Iraqis setting 600 Kuwaiti oil wells on fire during their retreat. This war was an armed campaign waged by this U.S.-led coalition of around 35-odd countries against one country, Iraq. 
as lopsided as the Iraq invasion of Kuwait was, this was lopsided times a hundred because the U.S. was a superpower. This particular project was codenamed Operation Desert Shield. This Operation Desert Shield was the idea of putting troops in the region to defend Saudi Arabia in the eventual hope of then liberating, and I air quote, Kuwait. This Desert Shield project started on the 2nd of August, 1919, concluded on the 17th of Jan, 1991, when it became Operation Desert Storm, which was the five-week, yes, five full weeks of aerial and naval bombing and bombardment of Iraq before even one coalition soldier went in. So that's five weeks of bombing, and then you go in. During this period, Iraq began to launch missiles into Israel with the aim of provoking a response from the Israeli military, which the Iraqi leadership hoped would prompt the coalition's Muslim states to withdraw and therefore jeopardize the alliance against Iraq. As the Iraqi missile campaign against Israel failed to generate its desired response, Iraq also launched Scud missiles at coalition targets stationed in Saudi Arabia itself. This was followed by a ground assault by the coalition into Iraqi-occupied Kuwait on the 24th of Feb. The offensive was a decisive victory for coalition forces led by the U.S., who liberated Kuwait and promptly began to advance past the Iraq-Kuwait border into Iraqi territory itself. 100 hours after the beginning of the ground campaign, the coalition ceased its advance and declared a ceasefire. Aerial and ground combat was confined to Iraq, Kuwait, and areas straddling the Iraq-Saudi Arabia border. One of the West's main concerns was the significant threat Iraq posed to Saudi Arabia. Following Kuwait's conquest, the Iraqi army was within easy striking distance of Saudi oil fields. Control of these fields, along with Kuwaiti and Iraqi reserves, would have given Saddam control over the majority of the world's oil reserves at the time. Iraq also had a number of grievances with Saudi Arabia itself. The Saudis, like Kuwait, had lent Iraq some 26 billion US dollars for its war with Iran. The Saudis had backed Iraq in the war as they had feared the influence of Iran's Shia revolution on its own Shia minority, again, just like Kuwait. After the war, Saddam felt he should not have to repay those loans due to him helping them fight their war, again like Kuwait. Soon after his conquest of Iraq, Saddam began verbally attacking the Saudis. He argued that the US-supported Saudi state was an illegitimate and unworthy guardian of the holy cities of Mecca and Medina. Acting on the Carter Doctrine policy and out of fear that the Iraqi army could launch an invasion of Saudi Arabia, U.S. President George H.W. Bush quickly announced that the U.S. would launch a wholly defensive mission to prevent Iraq from invading Saudi Arabia under that codename that I mentioned earlier, Operation Desert Shield. That wholly defensive doctrine was quickly abandoned when on the 8th of August, Iraq declared Kuwait to be Iraq's 19th province and Saddam named his cousin Ali Hassan al-Majid as its military governor. 
the U.S. President, George Bush, summed up the reasons with the following remarks. And I'm air quoting again. Within three days, 120,000 Iraqi troops with 850 tanks had poured into Kuwait and moved south to threaten Saudi Arabia. It was then that I decided to act and check that aggression, end quote. However, two commercial Soviet satellite images made at the time showed nothing but empty desert, i.e. no troop buildup at the Saudi border. In short, though, Saddam had bitten off more than he could chew. His ego got the better of him, and only one thing could tell him so. Extreme violence on him. That said, Iraq was right. It did have grievances, and it had monetary grievances against Kuwait and Saudi. But the way Saddam attacked Kuwait and then threatened Saudi, threatened U.S. oil interests and brought the superpower into the conflict. The Americans pretty much neutralized and demilitarized the Iraqi army. They were no longer a fighting force. However, it is alleged that Iraq used some chemical weapons against Kurdish Iraqis who led several uprisings against Saddam Hussein's regime during the 1990s. Iraq was then ordered to destroy its chemical and biological weapons, and the UN attempted to compel Saddam's government to disarm and agree to a ceasefire by imposing additional sanctions on the country in addition to the initial sanctions that were imposed following Iraq's invasion of Kuwait. The Iraqi government's failure to disarm and agree to a ceasefire resulted in sanctions which remained in place all the way to 2003, a total of 12 years. In addition to the sanctions, the US, the UK, France and Turkey claiming authority under UNSCR 688, a rule by the UN, established the Iraqi no-fly zones to protect Kurdish populations from attacks. That too lasted 12 years. The sanctions against Iraq is something hugely important. It is something akin to a war without firing a shot. Combined with the no-fly zone, it was a brutal result for the Iraqi people. It was authorized by the UN in an era of US unipolarity and hegemony, as the USSR had pretty much just fallen. In fact, you can check out my episode 38 on the collapse of the USSR and episode 69 on the American hyperpower for more. The original stated purposes of the sanctions were to compel Iraq to withdraw from Kuwait, to pay reparations, and to disclose and eliminate any weapons of mass destruction. Only in December 2021 did Iraq's central bank announce that it had finally paid off its entire debt of US dollars 52 billion in war reparations to Kuwait. But these UN sanctions imposed by some Arab and Western countries had harsh and severe implications to the civilian population of Iraq. At a humanitarian level, it was alarming. For instance, high rates of malnutrition, lack of medical supplies, and disease from lack of clean water were commonplace during the sanctions regime. In 2001, the chairman of the Iraqi Medical Association's Scientific Committee sent a plea to the British Medical Journal to help it raise awareness for the disastrous effects the sanctions were having on the Iraqi healthcare system. There were even reports 
that the U.S. government in the 1990s actively worked to wreck Iraq's water supply. Dennis Halliday, an American, was appointed UN humanitarian coordinator in Baghdad as of the 1st of September 1997, at the assistant secretary general level. In October 1998, just a year later, he resigned after a 34-year career with the UN in order to have the freedom to criticize the sanctions regime, saying, and I quote here, I don't want to administer a program that satisfies the definition of genocide, end quote. If that wasn't enough, Halliday's successor, Hans von Sponecht, a German national, subsequently also resigned in protest, calling the effects of the sanctions, and I quote again, true human tragedy. Estimates of excess deaths during the sanctions vary widely. Methodologies change and cover different time frames. And who is counting such a grave situation in any case? These are just numbers after all, are they not? In 1995, The Lancet, a medical journal, they put an estimate out there that the number of excess deaths of children under the age of five years old stood at 567,000, based on just a small sample size of food and agriculture organization surveys conducted in Baghdad with Iraqi government interviewers that ultimately also found a mortality rate of 200 deaths per 1,000 births several times larger than previously reported. A 1999 UNICEF study called the Iraq Child and Maternal Mortality Survey, using survey data from nearly 40,000 households, again collected by Iraqi government field workers, except in the autonomous Kurdish region, calculated that roughly 500,000 children had died as a result of sanctions. Let's assume the number of 500,000 child deaths was Saddam's propaganda. Maybe, maybe not, but let's assume that. Then just halve it to make it 250,000. And then halve it again to 125,000. And for the sake of argument, halve it one more time to 62,500. That is still insanely high, 62,500. Remember, this is child deaths directly as a result of sanctions avoidable child deaths. As part of a UK government inquiry in February 2003, so this was before the invasion of Iraq, a statement that went to then British Prime Minister Tony Blair said that, and I quote, today 135 out of every 1,000 Iraqi children die before the age of five, end quote. On the 12th of May, 1996, Madeleine Albright, then U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations in the Bill Clinton government, appeared on a U.S. TV show called 60 Minutes. When the commentator asks, referring to this 1995 survey, asked her, we have heard that half a million children have died. I mean, that's more children that died there in Iraq than in Hiroshima. And, you know, is the price worth it? That was the question from the interviewer. And Albright replied, and I quote, I think this is a very hard choice, but the price, we think the price is worth it, end quote. Following the 2003 Iraq war, the sanctions regime was largely ended, and that ended on the 22nd of May 2003, 
with certain exceptions related to arms control and oil, by the way. You see, sanctions ultimately allowed for the US and UK to have full control over Iraq's oil revenue. And these were not removed until December of 2010. In 1998, a fatwa was issued. Al-Qaeda leader Osama bin Laden cited the sanctions against Iraq as a justification for violence against the United States and Americans. So on the eve of the invasion in 2003, Iraq was politically isolated, militarily destroyed, lacked medicine, and it lacked an economy of any kind. It was forced into a no-fly zone and a harsh sanctions regime including paying off reparations to Kuwait for its own aggression back in 1990. On the 15th of February 2003, a month before the invasion, there were worldwide protests against the coming Iraq war, including a rally of 3 million people in Rome, which the Guinness Book of Records at the time listed as the largest ever anti-war rally. According to the French academic Dominique Rian, between the 3rd of Jan and the 12th of April 2003, 36 million people across the world took part in almost 3,000 protests in the coming Iraq war. The invading armies claimed that Iraq needed to be invaded because despite the people, government and military of Iraq being utterly destroyed, they harbored chemical weapons of mass destruction. According to then U.S. President George W. Bush and U.K. Prime Minister Tony Blair, the coalition aimed to disarm Iraq of weapons of mass destruction to end Saddam Hussein's support for terrorism and to free the Iraqi people. Even though a U.N. inspection team had declared that it had found absolutely zero evidence of the existence of WMDs just before the start of the invasion, the 2003 invasion of Iraq happened anyway. The invasion phase, or the first phase, began on the 19th of March 2003, which was the air campaign, and then on the 20th of March 2003 being the ground campaign. So it was almost a month of constant bombardment of the whole country. Baghdad was captured by the US-led coalition of the willing forces on the 9th of April 2003 after a six-day battle. The early stage of the war formally ended on the 1st of May 2003, when Bush declared the end of major combat operations. After that, the Coalition Provisional Authority, or CPA, was established as the first of several successive transitional governments leading up to the first Iraqi so-called parliamentary elections held in January of 2005. U.S. military forces later remained in Iraq until their withdrawal in 2011. Estimates on civilian casualties are more variable than those for military personnel. According to Iraq Body Count, a group that relies on press reports, NGO reports, and other official figures to measure civi civilian casualties, approximately 7,500-odd civilians were killed during just the invasion phase of this war. The occupation of Iraq came afterwards, and that is considered to be the years 2003 up to 2011. Troops for the invasion came primarily from the US, the UK, and Australia but 29 other nations also provided some troops and there were varying degrees of assistance from countries such as Japan. 
It was a period of violence and political turmoil, with strong foreign influence exerted on Iraqi politics. In April 2003, a military occupation was established. In June 2004, a caretaker government was established, called the Iraqi Interim Government. In January of 2005, following some kind of parliamentary elections, this was replaced by the Iraqi Transitional Government. A year later, the al-Maniki government took office. As of September 2006, there was an estimated 145,000 U.S. troops in Iraq. Also during this period, tens of thousands of private military company personnel, mostly from abroad, were employed in the protection of infrastructure facilities and personnel throughout Iraq. Efforts towards the U.S. reconstruction of Iraq after the damage of the invasion were slowed when occupation forces fought a stronger-than-expected militant Iraqi insurgency, leading to difficult living conditions for the population of Iraq throughout this period. The U.S. was also sitting in the middle of a civil war that erupted between the Shia and Sunni factions inside Iraq. On the 18th of August 2010, the U.S. combat troops were finally reported to have crossed the border into Kuwait and they left the country. A spokesperson for the U.S. Department of State, a P.J. Crowley, was quoted by the news media as saying that the departure was, and I quote, a historic moment, but noted that the U.S. presence in Iraq would continue. It is hard to fathom how many people actually died because who the hell was counting? So we rely on random sources who may or may not be accurate. Following leaks by WikiLeaks, 110,000 deaths with 62,000 of those being civilian in the five years from 2004 to 2009, that was after the invasion and during the occupation. The Lancet says 650,000 died during the early years of the occupation, that being 2003 to 2006. On the morning of the 18th of December 2011, the final contingent of U.S. troops to be withdrawn left for Kuwait. But following the withdrawal of the U.S. troops in 2011, the insurgency continued and Iraq suffered from political instability. In February 2011, the Arab Spring protests spread to Iraq. The Iraqi National Movement, reportedly representing the majority of Iraq's Sunnis, boycotted parliament for several weeks in late 2011 and early 2012, claiming that the Shiite dominated government, was striving to sideline the Sunnis. In 2012 and 2013, levels of violence increased and armed groups inside Iraq were increasingly galvanized by the Syrian civil war that was happening next door. That was with both sects crossing the border to fight there, the Shia and the Sunnis, from Iraq into Syria. On the 4th of June 2014, the insurgents began their efforts to capture Mosul. So now they're coming from Syria back into Iraq. The Iraqi army officially had 30,000 soldiers and another 30,000 federal police stationed in the city. Facing a 1,500-member attacking force, the Iraqi forces' actual numbers were much lower due to ghost soldiers, i.e. severely reduced combat ability. After six days of combat and massive desertions, Iraqi soldiers received orders to retreat. 
the city of Mosul, including Mosul International Airport and the helicopters located there, all fell under ISIL's control. An estimated 500,000 civilians would flee the city. And all this is separate to the killings and enslavement of the Yazdi population in Iraq. ISIL, by the way, ISIL, is the same as IS, Islamic State. By late June of that year, the Iraqi government had lost control of its own borders with Jordan and Syria. On the 14th of August, Maliki stepped down as prime minister to support Haider al-Abdi and to safeguard the high interests of the country, i.e. he was pushed out. As the war next door in Syria started spilling further into Iraq, Iraq lost a lot of land to IS, the Islamic State, and lost it quickly, in particular in the Sunni Arab heartlands. This was a real war in Iraq that lasted between 2013 and 2017. On the 15th of June 2014, then-US President Barack Obama dispatched his troops in response to what would become the Northern Iraq Offensive. It wasn't, however, until December of 2017 that the Americans under Donald Trump were finally able to remove ISIL from the Iraqi territory. And that was an enormous campaign. In addition to direct military intervention, the American-led coalition provided extensive support to Iraqi security forces by training intelligence and personnel. Despite U.S. objections, the Iraqi parliament demanded U.S. troops to withdraw in January 2020 following the deaths of Iraqi deputy chief of the Popular Mobilization Units and then a popular Iranian Quads general, Qasim Soleimani, in a U.S. airstrike. It was also announced that both the UK and Germany were cutting the size of troops in Iraq as well. In addition to withdrawing some of its own troops, the UK pledged to completely withdraw from Iraq if asked to do so by the Iraqi government, and Germany temporarily thinned out its bases in Baghdad. The UN estimated in August 2020 that at least another 10,000 ISIL fighters remained in Iraq and Syria. The coalition officially concluded its combat mission in Iraq in December 2021. But as of now, today, April 2022, U.S. troops remain in Iraq to advise, train and assist Iraqi security forces against the ongoing ISIS insurgency including providing air support and military aid. Why? Because generations of Iraqis have been wiped out by war, sanctions, and civil war. There isn't an Iraq to speak of. In November 2021, Iraqi Prime Minister Muftasa al-Khadimi survived a failed assassination attempt. And that brings us to the end of the episode. But I would like to say that in these 50 minutes, I've covered something like 100 odd years of a 5,000 year history of Iraq, but they have been tremendously difficult. It's a very difficult time for them, and it has been difficult for them for 100 years, and foreign intervention has not helped. Anyway, that's how I'd like to end, and we will talk next time. Thank you so very much. <music>